this morning. I have just recently asked Seth to come and read. Uh, so Seth, come forward and read Proverbs 4, 1 through 19. All right, yeah, I, I didn't preview this at all, really. So if I don't know you or you don't know me, I'm Seth Hogan. This is my family here in the front row, which is really the second row, but nobody sits in the actual front rows. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Ridgeline, and I work for Eagles Wings Disc Golf, which is a Christian sports ministry. Uh, let's take a look here at chapter 4, 1 through 19. Here, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that always makes me laugh. The beginning of wisdom? Get wisdom. It's simple. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it, do not go on it. Turn away from it, and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of the wicked, they eat the bread of wickedness, and drink the wine of violence. But the paths of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Thank you, Seth. Uh, this uh, is two different sections here. Four, um, one through nine, and uh, four, ten, through, uh, through 19. Two different sections. How do I know that? Um, you can see in the breakdown of Proverbs uh, that there are lectures from a father to his son. They're called paternal pleas or paternal appeals or paternal lectures. Different commentaries call them different things. But what we're covering today are the fifth and sixth paternal pleas. It's a dad talking to his son, and he's urging him to get wisdom and to pursue wisdom and to seek it as a treasure. And just so you have some kind of a context here, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's regarded as a child 
Um, here in, uh, in verse 4, uh, he says, uh, I'm sorry, in, in, uh, in verse 3, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one on the side of my mother, indicates uh, three to five years old, a very young age, a very helpless age. And these were likely some sort of a song or some sort of a poem or some sort of uh, um, a catechistic type question and answer teaching that a father would give to his son and a mother would give to her daughter. Uh, and it's recorded for us in these ways. And there are a number of these appeals. Just uh, bear with me for a minute. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. If you flip over to chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, etc., etc. And then look at chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Uh, again in chapter 3, verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, that Seth just read for us. And then chapter 4, verse 10. And then chapter 4, verse 20 is the one that uh, Keith preached for us last week while I was stuck in uh, 30 hours of airport travel. Uh, yay, right? Uh, so great to travel. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's a way that you can kind of understand um, the breakdown of Proverbs is chapters 1 through 9 are an introduction to the individual Proverbs that you're going to read in chapters 10 through 31. See, doesn't that help? Helps you to understand the structure, the, uh, the uh, author's intent, and what he, uh, how he was writing and why he was writing. If you have a good grasp on 1 through 9, then it uh, helps you to grasp the individual Proverbs later. There are big themes introduced in chapters 1 through 9. Next week we cover chapters five through seven about adultery. Uh, and so that's a big topic that he's going to cover. But it's not the only topic this father wants to help his son understand. So today we're just going to focus on two of these paternal lectures, uh, the fifth and sixth, and they discuss legacy and a path. Legacy and a path. And so we're going to walk through these verses uh, one at a time, and you're going to get uh, an understanding of that. Uh, so let's look back at the first one. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Just stop there for a second. Let's look at the text. O sons, there's only one of uh, a handful of times when the pattern deviates, where it's not hear my son, singular, masculine, noun. It's now a plural, and the construction of the Hebrew here describes the lineage, not as though he uh, multiplied sons between uh, chapters 3 and chapter 4 and then kicked the others out by the time he got to chapter verse 10, and so now he's just talking about one son again. Are you understand that? He says, here are my sons, but he's not really in, in context of the legacy that he's about to describe in verses 1 through 9. Now he's talking about sons through the generation, sons within your womb, right? Um, that's who he's describing when he says, hear a father's instruction, be attentive that you may gain insight. Verse 2, for I give you good precepts, do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, 
Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. In all of these paternal pleas, it follows somewhat of a formula. There's a command to listen, pay attention. Right? Sometimes I, I feel like I have to do that in church. Like, hey, listen, focus, look up, and, and all eyes will come up. Right? When I'm doing that to my kids, hey, you know, I need, I need your attention. I need you to look at me. And then their eyes kind of glaze over. And I don't know how you keep people's attention sometimes, but, but that's what he's saying to this little child. Listen, this is part of the paternal plea. The, the structure is always get their attention, help them focus. What I'm about to say, it signals that what he's about to say is important. And then his primary plea is always pursue wisdom. Pursue it. Treasure it. Seek after it. Uh, we sang that uh, great Dennis Jernigan song, My All in All, from the early 90s. And uh, you might remember that from the choruses back in the 90s if you were in church at that time. And, uh, and he sees, seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. That's the, uh, that's the cry for wisdom. And we understand that wisdom personified is actually Jesus Christ. Uh, through, if you've been following along over the last uh, several weeks, you've seen the correlation between the person wisdom in Proverbs and the greater revelation of Jesus as the ultimate person of wisdom, uh, wisdom per- personified. And so in many of these places, you can say that he's telling a son, seek the highest wisdom there is, and it's a person. It's not just knowledge. It's a person. So in that formula, after the uh, getting their attention and appealing to them for wisdom, then he's going to show them the motivation for it. And it's been different. Uh, each paternal appeal or each paternal lecture, there's been a different motivation. But look at what it is in verse 6. Do not forsake her. She will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, right? I laugh at that too, Seth. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, one of those kind of so obvious kind of things. Hey, the beginning of wisdom is this, go and get wisdom. All right, if I told you to go down to the store and get milk, and the first thing you need to do is go down to the store and get milk, that's kind of the redundancy that we might see here. But it's really just uh, mentioning the same thing twice to show you the supremacy of wisdom. If you were to tell your son or your daughter, live a wise life. The most important thing you can do is be wise. Wisdom is more than knowledge. Wisdom is life lived well, skilled living. And it's a combination of knowledge, but it's also a a combination of discernment and making good decisions in the moment and in a situation. Skillful living. Uh, And it's often marked by the following of Jesus Christ. By following him, putting your step exactly where he tells you and following obediently, if you look back, you'll see a life of wisdom. That's the appeal here. Do not forsake wisdom. She will love you. She will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you do, get insight. Verse 8, prize her highly. She will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Maybe if we were to translate that for us, um, uh, a beautiful garland and a graceful crown, that's, that's a trophy, right? If we, if we compete in something and we have our eyes set on winning a championship, um, uh, crossing a finish line in some kind of a race, and you, you get a medal, that's the, that's the metaphor that he's um, trying to encourage his son or daughter, go and get it and there will be a reward at the end. More than a participation trophy, but, uh, but some sort of a, uh, of a reward for a life well lived. He's describing his father 
giving him wisdom and sharing with him these talks. It talks about a legacy of walking in wisdom. Some of you have a legacy or a heritage of walking in Christ. You saw your parents do it. You remember waking up and seeing your parents down, uh, maybe with an open Bible and a cup of coffee or a devotional book or, or putting on worship music in the car or listening to sermons along the way or in some way, maybe you had it modeled for you, a, an imperfect, albeit, but a, a pursuit of godliness and Christ-likeness. Some of you didn't see that. Some of you had no heritage of godly uh, spirituality or legacy like that. The legacy, the heritage that was passed down to me, uh, the heritage that I know was from generation to generation to generation. When things get hard, all the men in our family line walked away. When you're not happy anymore or when you feel somewhat stifled, you go do something else or you go be with someone else. I have a legacy marked by generations of divorce, adultery, drunkenness, atheism, agnosticism, and above all else, a radical commitment to self and whatever it is that would satisfy self. And in the midst of that environment, I was presented with the gospel, and it was like the Lord plucked me out of that humanistic philosophy that just said, it's all for you, it's all for your pleasure, it's all whatever you want to do. It's like the Lord just said, not you. And he chose me out of that environment. One of my favorite evangelists used to describe his testimony as uh, God reached down into the garbage disposal and found something in there and pulled it out and decided to clean it up for his own glory and majesty. That's how I feel oftentimes that in the midst of the environment in which I was raised, God pulled me out and chose to redeem me and transform me uh, into uh, his image for his glory. After becoming a believer, uh, I, I can remember one of the earliest convictions that I had um, was this idea that uh, I, the legacy that I received will be different from the legacy that by God's grace I would give to my children. As an 18-year-old, uh, looking forward to my grandchildren at that time through this sort of spiritual conviction that I had that God would do something in my life that would reset the heritage and the legacy that was given to me by His grace that would be passed on to my children. And Lord willing, that will be true. And if so, it will be to no um, credit to me, but to, to the Lord Himself. Second Thessalonians 2 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruit to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That can be true of you as well. For every person in Christ, something has changed in that the legacy that you received from your parents does not transfer to you without your willingness and your intentionality to pursue it, make it your own, and pass it down intentionally. That is, God doesn't have grandchildren. Your children will not become believers because you decide that you want to become a Christ follower. 
It's their choice. The old proverb that says the children's teeth are set on edge because the parents ate grapes. Have you heard that? Uh, Meaning that the children would be um, affected by the parents. Um, That was thrown out in the Old Testament in that every person will be judged on their own merits of what they do with Jesus Christ. Parents can lead their children, they can model it for their children, but it is not the parent's fault if a child chooses to reject Jesus Christ. Parents, grandparents, if you're bearing a load of guilt right now, understand that that is not the guilt that the Lord has placed on you. Could you have done things better? Sure, we all could. Will all of my children be in therapy? Very likely right? It's very likely that I've made plenty of mistakes, but what they do with Jesus Christ is up to them and them alone. There will be children from this church whose testimony was, I grew up hearing all that, but I walked away from it. There will be other children in this church whose testimony 30 years from now will be, I grew up hearing the gospel and hearing the word of God preached, and I chose to follow the Lord. That's every individual's testimony. This is what he's talking about, though, is the parental responsibility to demonstrate, model, and teach your children. This passage talks about a legacy. What will you leave? For years, I've tried to think of advice or wisdom that was passed down to me, and I can only come up with two massively inconsequential pieces of advice. What will your children remember that you said or that you modeled? Will they recall your devotion and love for Jesus? Will they remember and tell their children about your conviction and faith and your love for God and your love for people? Will they cherish your sacrificial living and generosity? Will you be remembered by the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the flesh? For many of us, it will be some imperfect mixture of those two things that ultimately God will sort out to work for his own good and for his own glory in the lives of people. Solomon is passing down wisdom that he received from David. Just think about David's life. With the birth of Solomon came uh, coming out of a pretty dark period, if you remember your, your Old Testament Uh, In 1 Samuel, uh, David had his own father wounds. In chapter 16, Jesse uh, is told by Samuel, bring all your sons in front of me. I'm going to choose one of them to be a king. And so he brings seven of his sons, and they're all cleaned up and buttoned up. And and Samuel looked at the first one. He said, it's got to be this guy. Look how tall, look how nice looking he is. He looks like a king. And God said, don't judge by his appearance, for I have not chosen him. And he goes through all of them. Seven of them lined up in front of him. And he looks at Jesse and says, don't you have any more sons? I told you to bring all your sons. Well, yeah, I mean, this is all of them, but there is one more. You don't think that's a dad wound, right? He didn't even, wasn't even included in the sons. He said, well, there's the young one, but he's out uh, in the field. With, we put him out in the pasture with the, with the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. But even through that, David is still able to teach his son Solomon, saying, this is what my dad taught me, demonstrating a legacy of godly, um, intentional 
um, lectures or appeals. This wisdom was passed down maybe from Salmon to, uh, to Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David to Solomon and then to Solomon's sons. And what they do with it is up to them. But the parents taught the children. Now, ultimately, the wisdom of the Father passed down through the Holy Spirit is about His Son, Jesus Christ. We talked about Jesus being the personification of wisdom. Jesus is that wisdom that we're to pursue. He's the wisdom that we are to cherish. He's the wisdom that we're to sell everything as though we discovered uh, jewels and treasure in a field or a pearl of great price. He's the one that we're to sell everything for and to pursue him. But some of that same language is mirrored throughout Proverbs as it relates to wisdom. Go and sell everything. Get that. Get this. Pursue wisdom. He says instruction and insights, precepts, teachings. Hold fast my words. Keep my commandments. Um, Get wisdom. Get insight. Get words. It's all the different ways in which he's using this language to describe the body of knowledge that's enveloped or that is contained within wisdom or and Jesus Christ. Prize her. She will keep you, guard you, exalt you, honor you, and crown you. What a list. Do you want someone to keep you? Do you want to be guarded from trials and temptations and difficulties? Do you want to be exalted and honored? Do you want to receive a crown? That's the prize for treasuring wisdom. What are you passing down to the next generation? Listen, it doesn't even have to be your children. You're single here, you think, well, or you're young, you say, I don't even have a wife, I don't have a husband, I'm not married, I don't have any kids. It doesn't even have to be that. It could just be those that you have influence over as a teacher, a small group leader, a Sunday school class teacher, a coach, a mentor, or just a fellow member within the body of Christ. It could be anybody that you have some sort of a spiritual influence over. That's the legacy application. What are you leaving? What are you leaving? It doesn't, all the mistakes, everything that's in your past, the Lord can redeem all those things and allow you to leave something greater than you received as long as it is pointing to His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 10 through 19. This is the second paternal appeal or the second lecture within our section today. It's actually the sixth one uh, listed in Proverbs so far. Verse 10, hear my son, right? It's singular again, so he didn't kick all the other kids out just to pick one son. Uh, He was talking about the legacy of sons in the first section. Now he's just focused again uh, on the son, and he says, accept my words, same formula. Pay attention, accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you won't stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Don't let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. They can't sleep until they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep until they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't even know what they stumble over. So you see in verses 10 through 19, language of paths. 
Right? Verse 11, the way of wisdom, the paths of uprightness. Verse 12, walk and run, describing a path. Verse 14, the path of the wicked and they walk in evil. Verse 15, avoid that path. Verse 18, the path of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. Do you see the path language in there? You see, I'm not making this up. It's right there in front of you. You can see this. What do you think of when you hear the word path? You think of a mountain trail? You think of you know, that kind of walkway between where you park your car at the shore and you walk over the boards or the kind of the natural sand area, and then you walk onto the beach. Is that what you think of when you think of a path? You think of a mountain bike trail or some sort of a narrow walkway? I can tell you uh, just the human experience. We love roads. We love the symbolism behind paths. I just Googled it. Uh, Famous roads, famous paths, famous trails. And I got uh, an incredible amount of information, both in literature and in geology and in other ways. Uh, We are close to the Appalachian Trail. A few years ago, I hiked a portion of it and camped out with a couple of friends. Uh, And that's one of those kind of through hikers will spend months just hiking from the entire Appalachian Trail. Uh, In Oklahoma, where I grew up, we we were um, part of the Trail of Tears where Indians from Georgia were relocated and uh, placed in different places, but this long trail of sorrow and tears and death of being uh, removed from native lands into relocation to um, uh, other lands, Arizona, New Mexico, Oklahoma. Think of the Cumberland Gap. Uh, has this V-shaped passageway where the Appalachian Mountains and the intersection of Kentucky, Virginia, and Tennessee, uh, through all these different continental shifts and uh, meteorites, um, in all these ways it's become kind of a visual marvel of a narrow pathway between two great parts of land where so many people pass through as a historic gateway to the West. Uh, I looked at all these um, images of the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu in Peru that that uh, is so steep and and the pathway is so narrow and so difficult to get to. The Camino de Santiago is a, a path in Spain, a holy walk that pilgrims have taken for generations. You think of the Robert Frost poem, Two Roads Diverged and I Took the One Less Traveled and I Am Better for It. You might even think of uh, Michael Scott in the office following the uh, narrow instructions of his GPS right into a lake or a pond. In C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy takes the path to Tumnus while Edmund chooses the road to the White Witch. I didn't even get into a tenth of all the uh, references I got in literature and in movies and everything, but as humans, we love path metaphors. We like road symbols. And the Bible uses that imagery uh, as best as anybody. Um, And it teaches us something important about life. The path you choose to walk along reveals your ultimate destination. That sounds so obvious, right? Uh, we're doing a devotion uh, discipleship group, and our first group meeting is tonight. And this past week, me and these four other guys during the uh, during the week of devotions that we're doing together, one of them was your path you choose demonstrates your destination. Right? 
I don't know if you need me to mansplain that, but uh, like if you want to go somewhere, you get on the path that takes you there, right? That, that seems to make really clear sense to everybody. And yet somehow we, we don't uh, apply the metaphor to our spiritual walk. We choose to cross paths between the path of the evil, the path of our flesh, and the path to life. And then we, we sort of meander between those two, often in this dark place where Proverbs 19 says the wicked don't even know what they stumble over because it's like deep darkness. What are we supposed to learn about this path? Well, if you remember back from 10 through 19, it's a good path as described as wise, upright, obstruction-free. Right? Wouldn't it be nice to walk? Have you ever tripped over something at night? You kind of clear the path through the hallway to the bathroom or whatever to make sure that you're not stumbling over something in the middle of the night. It's an unobstructed path. It's an instructive path. It's a life-giving path. It's a righteous path, a path without regret. It says it's like the light of dawn that starts kind of dark but gets brighter and brighter and brighter. I was sharing with our staff a few weeks ago and thinking about this passage, that particular verse, and I pulled up this image when we were on the Sea of Galilee in 2015, and we decided really early one morning, me and, uh, me and another guy, Zach Towery, I said, hey, let's go climb up that, that hill up there, uh, really high, um, probably one of the highest hills uh, in that sort of region where it's likely that Jesus said, you see that city on the hill, it cannot be hidden. It was a very high city. Once we got up to the very top, it was still dawn, uh, still before the sunrise. And we were walking through all these ruins and all these um, ancient places where houses and temples and buildings and markets were. And then something kind of on the way down um, gripped me as I saw this, the sunrise over. And, and I caught the sunrise along this path and I captured an image of it. And I turned around and, and every, uh, in these kind of golden fields of grass, it was beautiful. And as we walked down that path, it got brighter and brighter and brighter. And that's the image that came up for the path of the righteous. It, it starts dark at the beginning of your Christian life, doesn't it? You remember when you first gave your life to Christ and the Holy Spirit began to illuminate Scripture for you and you said, that's what I was hoping for. That's what I was needing. That, that so filled your mind and satisfied you with the Word of God and the ways of God. And, and then as you walk, it just gets brighter and brighter and brighter so that you see clearly as you stay on that path. But then he describes the evil path. Son, avoid it. Turn away from it. It's wrong. You will stumble. It's filled with wickedness and violent people. It's like deep darkness. And have in Scripture these dualities, these binaries. The, the binary in Scripture is that there is always and only two groups of people. Believers or unbelievers, fools or wise, ungodly or godly, those in the flesh or those in the spirit, the goats or the sheep, heaven or hell, good or evil, saved or unsaved, regenerate, unregenerate, those who have the spirit and those who don't. And these paths that delineate as well are part of those binaries. And we see here in this section 10 through 19, two opposing paths. 
One is wisdom, a person you follow and a path you walk along. It's living by faith in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.8, the beginning of wisdom is this, fear the Lord. If you're going to set out to get wisdom, the first thing you need to do is get wisdom, right? That's the first step on this path of following Jesus. It's trusting in the Lord with all your heart and not leaning on your own understanding. It's in all your ways acknowledging him and he makes straight your path. That's the good path. It's the path of walking by faith in Jesus. But listen, according to the binary, one way or the other, black or white, to choose one over the other is to reject one and the other path intentionally. You may say, well, I never chose the worldly path or the wide path, but to, to do nothing is to choose to reject Jesus and the path of righteousness. You might say, well, that's too far, Gibson. Not choosing Jesus doesn't mean that I'm some evil, wicked person, right? And the, the cliche or the line that I hear so often is, I'm a good person. I'm not a murderer. That's like our level of comparison. I'm good because I haven't killed anybody, right? You'll never see me on a Friday night dateline or whatever. Uh, I didn't do that, so I'm, I'm a good person. I, I do good. I, I lose my temperature sometimes. Or I, 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 but, it, but everybody has this understanding that I'm not evil. I'm not wicked. But Scripture doesn't let you wiggle into that. It, it shows you this, this binary, this one path over the other. And to choose the path of wisdom and righteousness is to choose to follow Jesus Christ. That's the view of the Bible. That's, that's the option it gives you. You may not like that, but I have to be as clear as I can that that's the view that Scripture presents. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Matthew seven thirteen through 14 Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So which path will you take? Will you take a path of wisdom? A path of faith in Jesus and following him and obedience and, and walking away from temptation and resisting the enemy and resisting the crossovers that want to take you from one path to the other? I can tell you this, that as our culture has shifted against Christianity, it's always been against Christianity, but you've felt it in the last 15 years, the, the church that will remain, this is my prediction, it's not from Scripture, this is me talking, it's, not, it's just my observation, I don't want you to think I'm preaching to you like ex-cathedral or whatever, like some, some sort of authority I don't have, but this is just my opinion, that the church moving forward in America will be a remnant church and a potent church and a church that uh, people want to be a part of and are choosing to be a part of um, because they are rejecting a culture. It won't be the easy church of the 80s and the 90s where you could just be moral, raise your hand when somebody made a decision and, and just kind of live any way you want to for seven days, six days of the week and then go to church sometimes, say the Lord's Prayer at dinner time as just kind of an add-on and just relive some sort of a ritualistic religious life. It will be a, a church made up of people who are choosing to be in Christ and who are committed to Jesus 
who are committed to walking the narrow path, though it costs them something. That's my conviction. And the reason why the Bible describes a remnant and a potent, holy church of people who are called out of a dark culture isn't because we're sort of blazing our own trail. It's because we're following Jesus, the faithful son. See, in all these places where Solomon is saying, my son, my son, my son, my sons, especially here in the fifth and sixth appeal, all of those point to Jesus as the faithful son that we follow. Proverbs 4.1, hear and be attentive. Jesus is the son that does what the father says. Remember the garden of Gethsemane? Oh Lord, not my will. There's some other way. I don't want to go through this cross. There's some other way. Let me know. But if not my will, let your will be done. He's the, the, the son who follows faithfully the father's instruction. In 4.23, the Solomon to his son, keep your heart pure. Keep it with all vigilance for from, from it flow the springs of life. It's fulfilled in Jesus in John 8.46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why, you, why don't you believe in me? Jesus was the pure son who kept his heart pure. We're told John 12.49 that Jesus speaks as the Father directs him. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, and what he says is what I speak. He follows the Father's path in Proverbs 4.26-27. At the end of chapter 4 here, he says, Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your feet away from evil. We find that fulfilled in Jesus in John 12, 23 through 28. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, speaking about his sacrifice. He says, whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. But now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It's for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus performs the work that his father gives, especially by giving his life. Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. The one who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a son who brings shame. Fulfilled in John 5, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but he works doing what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. For John, Jesus is the truly noble Son who brings many sons and daughters to glory by tasting death and defeating the one who held death's power. You see this? When we're called to follow wisdom, you're not being asked to lean on your own understanding or to blaze your own trail or to strike out from the culture as though you're um, walking your own path. 
You simply follow in the footsteps of the one who redeemed you. Sort of means. That's what it means is Jesus is the truly noble son who perfectly pleased the father. And that's Proverbs 4, 1 through 19. The legacy that will be left and the path that you will choose. It's my prayer today that you would put into practice what you hear. That if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in some way, that your demonstration of faith would be of repentance from the deeds of your flesh and darkness onto the path of life. Father, your word says in Psalm 1611, I make known to you the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Would you forgive us when we seek pleasure and satisfaction in anything other than your presence? For many of us, we do it all the time. We seek comfort in experiences or in uh, some sort of a substance or in some sort of a relationship. For many of us, we seek um, the pleasures of life not in you, not at your right hand, demonstrating that we have deviated from the path of life. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you grant us a listening ear today, one that says... I will return. I will return, and would you forgive me? I will return to the path of life that you have called me to walk, though it costs me everything. As we see from our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan and in other places in the Middle East, they have counted the cost and they are carrying their cross and following you. Lord Jesus, would you let us be those in this area that you have chosen to redeem, that would shine like stars in a dark and depraved generation. That our children would see it and our grandchildren would see it and those around us would see clearly that we have chosen a path of righteousness in following Jesus. Would you let it be so today? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.